FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. It's great to have all of you with us as we start a new week here at George Public Broadcasting. Um, we have a lot to talk about, so let's get right to the panel today. Well, no, before we get to the panel, uh, Jim Galloway, I want to make sure that our listeners know, they haven't heard it until now, that we're all going to be out at the University of Georgia, your alma mater, your stomping ground. Class of 1977. Wow. Monday evening, April 8th, we're going to record Rewind in front of a live audience. Uh, if you go to politicalrewind.org, you can get information about uh, the taping, about how you can get tickets. They're free, but uh, when we do these shows out on the road, they, the, t- the seats go fast, so you ought to go there and sign up as quickly as possible. Yeah, we want to pack the place. Yeah, yeah. Galloway is going to try to track down UGA to bring UGA to uh, be our mascot for the show. You know, I went to school with 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 uh, Ms. Seiler, who who oh. uh, who uh, uh, is is his um, who is guardian. I would say. Well, that's why we want you to track UGA down and make sure that UGA's at the show. That's Jim Galloway. Of course, you all know he's a lead political writer for the <laughs> Atlanta Journal Constitution and oversees the Political Insider blog at AJC.com. Uh, also with us today, Lori Geary, who I've been introducing for as long as you've done this show as the uh, uh, former political reporter at Channel 2 News, and you certainly are that. Um, but now we can also <laughs> say you are about to become the host of Georgia Gang on Fox 5 Sunday mornings at 8.30 this past week. There was a transition, a really poignant transition for you. Dick Williams has been hosting that show for at least 150 years. <laughs> And now you take over. I always say, you know, I have big shoes to fill. First, it was yours at Channel 2, Bill Nygut. And now it's Dick Williams after more than three decades. I mean, this is his baby. I mean, he really started the show, the ideas behind the show, and really kept it going and kept it successful. So a huge congratulations to Dick Williams. And um, it was a passing of the baton this past week. So I'm excited. Yeah, I think it's going to be great to see you host that Thank show. You. So uh, that, that's you'll be... Your first show is hosted this next Sunday at 8.30 yes. on Fox 5. Well, congratulations. I mean, we have a chance at the end say a few more words about uh, Dick Williams and the long career he's had here covering politics in Georgia. Amir Faroki, city councilman for the city of Atlanta. He's overseas. You're the, the old fourth ward. Couldn't ask for a more prestigious ward to uh, uh, be the councilman for him. <laughs> and here. downtown and midtown and, downtown. and a few other neighborhoods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well— Welcome. We're glad to have you back today. To we got, there are any number of issues that touch on your work as an Atlanta City Councilman, and we'll get to those as the show goes on. And Heath Garrett's back with us. Heath Garrett, longtime Republican strategist, consultant, uh, political insider, a power maker in the Republican Party in Georgia. How are you, Heath? I'm great. I feel like I'm just sitting here in the shadow of giants. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, definitely you're in politics. Old, <laughs> growth, old, old, old growth trees. Uh, yeah. go, right. go, go dogs for the Athens uh, trip yeah. here, guys. All right, let's, uh, let's get going on this. Um, Jim Galloway, the front page of today's Atlanta Constitution, has a story which, no disrespect intended, but it's sort of like a you know, dog might, bites man story. Uh, it, the story says that Speaker Ralston, dealing with this... Um, controversy over the AJC Channel 2 investigation about whether he used his position in the legislature to delay trials of some pretty serious alleged uh, felon criminals. Uh, It said that there are members who are complaining that the speaker wouldn't move their bills because they were critical of him. How shocking. Uh, Not at all. Uh, to, 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 To be absolutely truthful here. Uh, it's uh, uh, some of the bills that are being uh, considered. I mean, like uh, Matt Gertler's uh, 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 constitutional concealed carry. That was never going to go anywhere anyway. Uh, there are a few. I, I, I will tell you one thing that the story doesn't hit that 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 probably is happening more is that uh, if you're if you're trying to uh, say apply discipline 
to a to a uh, recalcitrant uh, lawmaker, the place you do it is in the budget, in 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 money designated for his community community, and you and you slice that away. Well, that said, the notion that a speaker of the house, lieutenant governor, anyone who's overseeing a legislative body might in fact look less favorably upon uh, the legislation being introduced by opponents is not exactly scandalous or, or his or his or his lieutenants might do yeah. be be the same be in the same protective uh, mode yeah no no it's it's not but it is happening and and so you do need to note that oh no no I understand right. that but but so let me expand on that just a little bit Heath Garrett um, the the other story that developed over the weekend in in relation to the speaker, um, and when, in fact, Lori, I should ask you about this before I put the Republican sure. <laughs> in the room on the spot. Lori, the other story um, that we heard is that a number of county GOP conventions, which met this weekend, uh, in one way or another, criticized or, in fact, asked the speaker to step down from his leadership post as a result of these allegations. And it strikes me that that's a bit more serious. Well, I also don't think, though, it's surprising. I mean, a lot of these folks are your hardcore grassroots um, supporters and really pay close attention to these issues. I thought in the beginning that this really had legs and that there was so much pressure on the speaker that perhaps, you know, we were heading down that road for him to step down. But he did two things, I think, that were effective, you know, kind of in the PR 101 world. And one was, you know, he called for a change in the law. And number two was he said he wasn't going to take any more cases um, until the current ones are resolved. The one thing that he did do that I wasn't I didn't agree with is that he called himself a victim of the liberal media. And, you know, this is the same media that goes after like Kasim Reed at City Hall and all of that. So I, I don't think that that holds any fruition. I, I think it's also the same media that on any number of occasions has treated David Ralston uh, very fairly mm -hmm. said that he was, in fact, a temperate leader. I mean, he's gotten right. an awful lot of good press. He sure has. But, but I mean, <laughs> I mean, talk about the leadership and, you know, I mean, just the loyalty to Speaker Ralston. I mean, the story kind of went away for a few days. The only way I see this as having legs and really putting more pressure on the speaker is if there are more stories that come out or more victims. But um, I think that he's handled it as well as can be. He's... It, yep. I said, as we were about to go on the air, that I thought we should address this first because it is the most recent news in state politics. It all developed over the weekend. Um, but you all persuaded me that perhaps, as Lori just said, this isn't as big a deal as it sounded like it could be. But it does represent the sort of is it a split in the Republican Party? What does this reflect? Well, it does represent there are obviously political parties today. We used to think of them as that each party had a couple of different factions. Now these political parties, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, have multiple factions. And the group who is trying to pass resolutions uh, in the state legislature, there are 10 or 11 of those House members. Um, they're part of a very, very conservative caucus within the Republican world. And you go to these grassroots Saturday morning breakfasts at these counties, and it does, as Lori mentioned, it represents the ten, top 10 most conservative percentages of any of the Republican Party. And these are the groups that tried to censor and and uh, take, you know, uh, tell Saxby Chambliss that he needed to no longer be a U.S. senator. They've censored Johnny Isaacson. They censored Nathan Deal over the years. And so there's kind of a history of whoever's in power. Some of these local parties come forward with these resolutions just to kind of, they don't represent the broader percentage of Republicans around the state of Georgia. Yeah, I, I think you could say that the, the speaker's problem uh, has have, has ag aggravated a, a, a fissure that was already there. Because, I mean, I mean you got to remember, David Ralston is the guy who, at, in, in his, uh, at, at his, at, this Saturday at, at Fannin County, uh, in, in the Fanning County GOP, he was he was arguing that that the that the party activists, the hardcore these these people who go to the conventions, need not to put suburban Republicans in between a rock on, and a hard place on on legislation because otherwise they're going to lose control of the House. Well, that raises one of the questions I wanted to ask about this, Amir. Uh, among the counties that, in one way or another, rebuked uh, Ralston over the weekend were uh, Gwinnett and Heath Garrett's home county, Cobb. I, I can't help but wonder to what extent, though, if that's a product of just what Jim is talking about, Republicans in those counties who 
worry about how Democrats are making vast inroads, decided that this would be a good place for them to at least take something of a stand to not keep an issue alive in their own communities. Yeah, I can't speak for uh, county Republican parties, of which I, I know nothing at all. Um, <laughs> and, and do I think that someone should have to wait 10 years to have a DUI case or a domestic violence case heard? No, but I, I um, you know, I defer to the, my fellow guests on this panel who probably know the, the speaker and, and the machinations of both the Republican Party and the legislature better than I do. Um, you know, I think the speaker's elected by his constituents to be a member of the House of Representatives, and it's up to the um, his colleagues and his party at, at the Capitol to determine whether he should be in that role. And I did note that some of the folks that we're reading about in the newspaper, they have been op- opponents to Speaker David Rawson for a number of years now, and there have been a number of battles over that time. And it's almost become a cottage industry to, to go after him in the primary in his home uh, district up there. And I think some of them are using this as another political Okay, but, but what about what I'm suggesting here, Laurie, that, that if you're in Gwinnett or Cobb County, you, 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 you make a stand to some extent so that it's a kind of issue that can't come back to bite you in 2020. Well, I also think, though, the speaker really appeased some of the hardcore conservatives who might have been wavering on their support by allowing the, the vote on the heartbeat bill. I mean, that I wasn't sure if that would come out of the House, right? Um, And I think a lot of people were surprised that that came out of the House and he allowed that vote. So, um, you know, he did appease some of the hardcore conservatives. And I I also I don't want to take away from, you know, the folks who did speak up and say that this is wrong and took a stance. Right. The representative David Clark's of the world. Scott Turner um, and Scott Turner, um, because, you know, this is what, you know, I think a lot of people have fault with in politics, right? You don't take a stand. You just kind of fall in line and you follow the leader. And, you know, for the folks who came out and, and did that, I think that was really courageous. And they knew, I mean, they knew that their legislation wasn't going to get through and maybe the chairmanships were gone. But, um, I, I mean, I like to see this type of thing play out in politics. I think that's a really excellent point, Jim Galloway, that, you know, to stand up and take a stand uh, is what we admire about that we, we want people to there do. There is morality, politics. and then there is pragmatism, and they are always at war with each other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. All right. Well. Uh, okay. Thank and you. Wait. Well, and Bill, in, in, in defense of Speaker Rawlson, I would make the argument that there are times to take moral stands, but the facts may not have really justified that here. So I don't think all the the Republicans who didn't come out here are not taking a courageous stand. I think if you get into the weeds on this, um, it's not as big of a deal necessarily as some people made it out to be. Oh, I disagree. And I know, I'm sure you, you know do. No, I disagree because, I mean, you're talking about child molestation cases uh, uh, and DUIs, and we're talking and, about and, and victims. Not, but, but not all those delays were attributable to Speaker Ralston. Okay, 90%. All right, all right. <laughs> let's move on. Uh, you know, Amir, since we have you here, I thought it was important for us to uh, revisit uh, uh, one of the votes that took place on Crossover Day, we, we've already mentioned on our show on Friday that a lot of us came away from Crossover Day uh, stunned by some of the things that came through the legislature that people really didn't expect were going to uh, uh, get through. And among those things was the Senate actually approving the plan for the state to take over Hartsfield-Jackson Airport. That bill now goes to the House Speaker Ralston, again, has already said somebody better show him why this is important, why it's necessary. But, Amir, that does not mean that this measure isn't going to get a hearing in the House. And we have no idea what the outcome is going to be at this point. We don't. Um, you know, I, will, I sit on the transportation committee at, on city council, so we oversee the airport. The airport comes to us every two weeks for a whole host of uh, approvals they ask for. Um, and I went to the state Senate committee uh, State Senate Transportation Committee a few weeks ago and made public comment. This means a credible amount to everyone at the city, whether it's the mayor, city council. Um, this is an institution that the city has built over almost a century. Uh, it has benefited not just the city, but the entire state of Georgia has grown based on on the strength of the airport and the growth of the airport. Um, and we've done that entirely with city oversight. Uh, and so, you know, I think what's happening right now at the Capitol is without merit. It's purely politically motivated. Uh, it's it's um, it's a power play in many ways. And in, in an era where there's less and less heft to the Metro Atlanta GOP uh, constituency, I think you see rural legislators kind of grasping for straws right now. 
uh, trying to exert some sort of influence over Metro Atlanta. Uh, and I, I, I hope it will fail. I, th I hope cooler heads will prevail. I think um, this is a test for the governor and for leadership in, in the House right now um, to see if we're going to have um, kind of thoughtful, moderate leadership or we're going to um, see the, the governor uh, that we saw in the primary with a, a gun pointed at a teenager. So let's do this. I want to play, that, that we, at, at least on this show, we have not framed this debate in the context that Senator Nan Oreck did on crossover night. Uh, and I think her comments are worth listening to and then opening it up to see if the panel thinks she makes a point. It may be uncomfortable to hear this, but in the eyes of many, there's an old trope here that's quietly bubbling beneath the surface, we fear, and it certainly uh, has a perception, whether it is the reality, and that is the old trope that black people can't run things. Just going to be a mess if you let those black people run something. We got to put the state over there in charge, because they'll never straighten it out. You know, they're just, just going to tear this thing up and, and, and uh, ruin it. And, th and that, is, that is believed. And that is said in the face of an airport whose track record is incredible. Lori, what about the uh, place that race may play in all of this? Well, I think, you know, being in Atlanta 20-something years, race always plays a yeah. factor in any issue. Um, that's always an underlying tone. But I think, um, you know, I, I, I get where Republicans are on this issue because of all of the um, corruption, right? Um, I think state oversight, maybe, but not maybe a state takeover. I think there needs to be more transparency, and I know that Mayor Bottoms is working towards that. Um, I think I think there needs just to be there needs to be a coming of the minds that they need to compromise here or something because something does need to be done, and I think everybody would agree on that matter because of the history of the corruption. Um, and, and let's face it, race plays a part because you have African-American mayors um, of Atlanta. And you have people who have already been indicted or, or have already pled guilty uh, in, in the uh, federal investigation who are uh, African-American. Jim? Uh, if, if I could, uh, I kind of likened it, this, this move uh, to take over the airport on Sunday to uh, Brexit. Yeah, you had a terrific <laughs> column, and I, that's exactly what I wanted to do, was ask you to help us unpack a bit what you had to say and then get the rest of the panel to what, what, what troubles me about this is you've got, you've got the airport, which represents a $64 billion a year uh, uh, impact. In, in Atlanta, in, in Georgia. I mean, it is, it is truly a, a driver of the state. And you had a, you, you have a, there was an interesting exchange between uh, the two of the Joneses in the, in the state Senate. Uh, uh, Bert Jones, who's the author, was the author of uh, Senate Bill 131, and Emmanuel Jones of, of, uh, of uh, Decatur. And Emmanuel Jones was asking, you know, this has been under consideration for two, two years. And he was asking for some basic data on what's the financial impact of transferring title from the city of Atlanta to, to, to the state of Georgia. And there was no answer yeah. to that. Yeah. And, and, there, and there, there seems to be the, the, the justification is we have corruption and, and we can do it better because we are not them. All right. And, and, and I, would, I would argue that the, the state authority system Two things: the state authority system that 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 the Jones Bird Jones is is saying would would be would be the the solution for this. Number one, it's it's not an apples to apples comparison. Uh, the, the, there's nothing like the Atlanta airport in in uh, in, the, in the port the port of Savannah and the Georgia World Congress Center are not comparable entities to do that. Okay, all right, and and the so I I, I would uh, that part worries me uh, to the extreme. Uh, that 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 we may be starting a ball rolling and not really caring where it, uh, where it ends up. Yeah, Heath. Right. The, what is the answer to Speaker Ralston's question, saying, What's "Someone, please line? tell me the compelling argument for the state to take the airport." No, that's right. Now, look, I mean, they, of course, like in everything in politics, you can't take the politics out of politics. You can't take the you can't in the South. You can't take race out of politics uh, at all. I do think that Senator Orrock over. Um, uh, step the boundaries of what the 
legitimate justifications are for at least a regional board governing this airport. But, but is she but, wrong that there is something that it works in even subconsciously on issues like this? There's no question that for a few, okay. it does. Okay. However, just because you have African-American leadership and the corruption doesn't mean you don't then try to do something about the corruption okay. uh, in this case. Uh, I do think that this has been looked at before uh, over the last 20 years. The Atlanta airport is one of only two major metropolitan airports or ports that is not governed by a regional authority in the United States of America. So it is a unique entity. That being said, and there is corruption, when, when we looked at this in 1999 and 2000 following the Bill Campbell administration, uh, the federal government and the state looked at doing this, and Shirley Franklin, an African-American leader, did a great job in broadening transparency and accountability, and there were no issues related to in the state or the federal government wanting to come in and alter the management right. of the airport. So I think there's a balance here, and it doesn't have to be all state takeover or Everything that's happened for the last eight years with all these indictments continues forward because nobody's doing it. I know everybody wants to get in on this, but Amir, I really first want to get you as a member of the city council to react to what you're hearing. There's a lot to react to, but I'll react really quickly to what Heath just said. Atlanta is one of two airports in the country that don't have some sort of regional or or broader governance model. And yet, this is the busiest airport in the world. This is the most efficient airport in the world. It's among the world's uh, most heralded airports. Um, and to answer Speaker Ralston's question, you know, where's the compelling argument? There is none. There is no compelling argument for the state to take over the airport, to exercise any oversight. Um, I think what oftentimes gets brought up are procurement issues that have bubbled up and percolated, which are completely, entirely separate from the running and management of the airport. Procurement is done through the procurement department of the city. The airport is run by the airport. Procurement decisions at the airport are made by the procurement division at the city. Um, the mayor and the city council have been very, very aggressive the last 14 months on uh, putting in really strong people to lead those various uh, agencies, as well as instituting new oversight um, legislatively uh, to, to tackle procurement and increase transparency and ethics. And so, look, the airport is in the best run hands uh, and will continue to um, to drive this region in this state uh, under city leadership. All right. Lori and Jim, I know you both want to jump in well, fast. I think you got to remember, too, that the uh, the Ports Authority, the World Congress Center Authority, are political appointees, too. So you're, you're still having the political appointee issue there. But also, to Amir's point, like, where does it end? I mean, there are issues with watershed management. Are you going to take that over, too? I mean, there are issues with procurement. Are you going to take over procurement? You know, there are issues and, in other counties and other parts of the state right. as well. It's so, not just so an So where does issue. this end? And, you know, Republicans are about local control. I would also add one, one other thing. And the, the state has an advantage in this debate in that it can define what corruption is and what it is, it is not. It sets state law. You know, there, there are federal laws uh, governing that, too. But the state gets to define what is and what is not corruption. Uh, and, in, you know, in, so, so it's got a little bit of a leg up when it comes to, when it, when it comes to, to the procurement issue. Uh, I mean, we can we can talk. Well, we'll talk about the voting machines later on in the program. I think, right. yes. but there's a you know, look, there's a there. You could you could look at that 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 uh, that process that's going on right now and say, eh, there's something funny about that. Um, well, another a little fun legal point, right? Because all this has to do with some law. You know, counties and cities are actual creatures of the state. Creatures of the state, yeah. So in reality. All right. you know, there's a funny, interesting constitutional argument there. Amir, um, as this debate unfolded on Crossover Day, Bert Jones was able to hold up the front page of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, which had a headline about the latest indictment in the federal investigation of uh, the airport co- of contractors and bribes in the city of Atlanta. Uh, they uh, nabbed a guy, uh, uh, J- Jeff Jafari, who, in fact, did have airport contracts. And um, B.J. Pack, who who has been running this federal investigation, uh, said, gee, I didn't realize that they were debating this down at the Capitol on the same day. Now, there's no reason not to take the uh, uh the prosecutor at his word. On the other hand, he was—he himself was a member of the legislature, a pretty astute guy politically. The timing was uh, inauspicious, to say the least. It was curious that you'd have to ask B.J. Pack uh, uh, that question, not me. Yes, um, I understand. Yeah. And I, I will also note um, Jafari's company, most of the business he did with the city was with Watershed. 
and not with the yeah, airport. Yeah, but he got a big building yeah. contract at the airport at yeah. one point. I mean, he did have yeah. contracts that, out there, right? I'm not trying to justify, like, okay. any sort of um, malfeasance or bribery is unacceptable in any level of governance. It, we can look at the history of governance. There's always seems to be some level of corruption. Uh, the city has and will continue to take every step uh, it can, at least on the council side, as best we can on council and supporting the mayor on this. We're all on the same page uh, that um, the city deserves to be run on the up and up with full um, commitment to 100 uh, percent kind of ethics and transparency. And we've been doing everything to do that since this mayor has taken over. Uh, and a lot of what's being called out right now uh, is under previous administration. So, Laurie, before we get to a break, um, there's been a lot of attention focused on the fact that this did not happen during the last administration because Kasim Reed uh, and Nathan Deal had such a great working relationship. Uh, Brian Kemp uh, uh, and and uh, Mayor Bottoms have not been able to develop that relationship. But but I also have to wonder to what extent is the onus more on the mayor to step up and show that she's got the muscle that is necessary and the negotiating skills to try to find a way out of this. Yeah, it's um, my understanding she was out of town last week. So um, what I'm wondering is where is she? Um, where is she? She should be holding these news conferences saying, I mean, she declared that this is war, but now it's time that we hear from her. And the fact also is we're not hearing from Governor Kemp. He's yeah, been yeah, silent on this issue. We need to hear from issue. both of them very so, quickly. So um, I think they need to get together, maybe do some behind the scenes negotiating here and then come out and, and take their stances. All right. Well, this is a story that we're clearly going to watch very closely uh, in the next few. We've got about three weeks left in the legislative session, I think. So we'll watch this closely. Let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way. When we come back, we've got more to talk about at the legislature. Uh, plus, Jim Galloway, we're going to hold it for after the break. But you have some important breaking news to share with us. Oh, that. In a moment. Financial contributions from listeners like you are not the only gifts that keep GPB on the air. In fact, many listeners have already chosen to donate a used vehicle to GPB. We'll pick up your vehicle for free and send you the paperwork for your taxes. Get started today. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or go to gpb.org cars. That's 877-GPB-1-CAR or gpb.org cars. And thanks. President Trump promises to get more water to California farmers. We're going to solve your water problem. You have a water problem that is so insane. It is so ridiculous. But a new investigation finds problems with fast-tracking an irrigation plan. I'm Audie Cornish. What's at stake for farmers and wildlife this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. 4 till 7 today on GPB and gpbnews.org. Welcome back to Politico Rewide. All right, Galloway, big news story broke while we were talking about uh, the airport. All right, this is the Washington Examiner. It says uh, Stacey Abrams said Monday that she won't run for president in 2020. The announcement came at the South by Southwest Festival in Austin. Abrams said, quote, 2028 would be the earliest I would be ready to stand for president, comma, close quotes, according to reports. Her people are 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 uh, are uh, saying this was taken out of context and that she leaves all options open. Uh, but I don't. Wait a minute. Yeah, <laughs> you have an exact quote there. Uh, well, the, the this is this is this is the uh, this is the the st the Twitter message from Lauren Gro Wargo, her former yeah. campaign manager. Fact check: Stacey Abrams' remark at uh, uh, South Southwest uh, were in reference to her years-old spreadsheet, not her. Current considerations. Yeah, yeah. The exact the exact tweet from Lauren Growargo uh, is uh, because Robert just sent it to me. Fact check: uh, Stacey Abrams' remarks at South by Southwest were in reference to her years old spreadsheet, not her current con current considerations. She is taking a look at all options on the table in 2020 and beyond. All right. So let's get away from the rundown for a minute. We got more from the legislature, but Lori Geary. Stacey Abrams has had a—she has made her career what it is today on the basis of this campaign she ran, reaching out to Georgia voters. She had a—you know—you know, she had one of the closest gubernatorial races in decades, and we're all sitting around waiting to hear what she has to say about running for the next office, Senate, President, 
governor. And, and what we're getting are little crumbs from her talking to audiences everywhere but in Georgia. What It, it, it feels really odd to me. It's a brilliant PR strategy from a, right? Because we're waiting for the little crumbs. <laughs> but I mean, she really, if you take a step back, she has a national stage. I mean, the national Absolutely. media, Washington Democrats love her. She probably has a better national audience than she does here in Georgia. And so she's going out to where she's loved and she's speaking to these audiences. And I mean, I, I still think that she's either a great vice presidential running mate candidate or, you know, a challenger to David Perdue, because I, like I've said all along, she's hot right now and a lot can happen in four years. I, I, let me be careful and yeah. make sure I say what I'm suggesting here. And Mayor, I'm going to throw this to you. Um, I don't begrudge for a second that Stacey Abrams has become a huge national figure in Democratic circles and that she has opportunities to go out and be seen in front of audiences everywhere. That seems really reasonable. She earned that right given the campaign she ran, uh, the risks she took being a liberal candidate in the state of Georgia. I'm talking now about how she chooses to parcel out information about what she may or may not do next. I would think that typically— Somebody who's going to run for office you want in the scoop Georgia. Bill, that's what you're saying. No, no, I don't care if it's me or if it's Dennis O'Hara, W-A-B-E, <laughs> or Lori Geary on, uh, you know, Georgia gang. It just seems <laughs> odd that it's all this stuff is happening away from the state of Georgia. Well, look, I don't think you can, uh, like you, I don't think any of us should begrudge her for um, from uh, being all over the country right. talking to people because— she has struck a chord uh, amongst Democrats and, and, and Republicans to some degree. And so she has a national audience, a national platform, and more power to her um, to uh, spend time talking to folks around the country. Uh, and the fact that she may have said something in an event in, in, in Austin versus in Atlanta or Athens, so what? I mean, I, like she's got plenty of people here who love her. Uh, you know, almost uh, she almost won the election by— uh, yeah. If, 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 I, if I can jump in here, and, and at the risk— of sounding really, really old, we've seen this. We've seen this before. When Jimmy Carter left Atlanta for the White House, uh, uh, I can tell you personally, the, the 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 Atlanta media was pretty much tossed in a ditch, and the 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 media of favor was all based in D.C. and New York. Well, the same thing happened when Newt, Newt Gingrich became exactly. Speaker yeah. of the House. I, but, I used but. to get to talk to Newt routinely until he became Speaker of the House. But they were in office. Well, they were in office. <laughs> they were, they, that's <laughs> right. So, but I, as a Republican, I might have a slightly different viewpoint of this. We knew all along that Stacey Abrams would be making these announcements from outside the state of Georgia. Her entire campaign was run and funded by people no, from outside wait, the state wait, of Georgia. Wait, wait. Okay. So, and so uh, I think that there is a different perspective on this, right? Where did the lion's share of the money come from in that last campaign? This right? is a point the NRC, uh, NRSC yeah, is making. It is a, it's a factual argument. That, that, and so it, we, it, it's not surprising. And I, I, I do agree with you, Bill, from a purely political standpoint. This isn't how you either announce or not announce a presidential campaign, a vice presidential bid, or, or, a, Senate race. or a Senate race because you're hurting all of those. It is getting you free publicity, but at a point in time, it starts to look like this kind of chaotic uh, all done. But there is a legitimate point to the fact she is more popular in New York and California. I, I don't know that Heath has any data to support that, Lori, nor do no. I think well, it's fair to say that she didn't build an enormous following of uh, supporters and voters oh, I didn't here, say that. regardless I of whether said... the money, she did get a lot of money from outside. Again, <laughs> Bill strictly, words in my mouth. strictly from the point of view of who may be electing you next, You'd think you want to come home to Georgia and tell the people of Georgia what you want to do. And <laughs> she will, right? She will in due time. Maybe. If she makes an announcement to run in, in in Georgia, I'm sure it will be in Georgia. Okay. okay. The, the, other yeah. part of, the other part of this, Bill, is is that as long as she's on the road, if she's in New York, if she's in, in Los Angeles or in Nevada or in Austin, like, like she is today, uh, she's asked easy questions. If you, she's she's asked national policy questions, which are fairly easy. When she comes to Georgia, uh, she would be asked about uh, voting machines. She would ask, be asked about what Brian Kemp has done lately. Uh, those are those are not particularly the answers 
that she wants to, they're not the questions that she wants to answer at this point. I, I, look, I don't think Stacey Abrams has ever shied from a controversial or complex <laughs> issue. I, I think she has proven her, her mettle and her, um, her intellect day after day after day. And so I, I would say, I don't think the media, the local media getting its feelings hurt that, that Stacey Abrams running around the country talking about her ambitions or her next steps matters at all. All that matters is, um, does her message resonate with voters and to a large extent it has, and we'll see what her next steps are. But I agree with Jim because I, I think it's clear that the national media doesn't necessarily understand how Georgia elections work. And when she has her message about voter suppression, they all point to Brian Kemp because he was secretary of state. And they don't realize also that it's 159 individual counties with 159 different rules and all of that. So there are there's definitely a different set of questions from the Georgia media versus the national media. All right. Well, my point was merely that I think the people of Georgia and, yes, the media of Georgia as well are getting to the point where we would like to hear ourselves from Stacey Abrams instead of getting it from places like uh, South by Southwest. But, Jim, to close out this portion of the show, she has said for a while now that by early April we'll know what she plans to do next. And then you can see a whole lot of other dominoes that will fall after that, people who are waiting for her to choose one race or the other. It was March. Now it's April. Well, That's what I thought it was, March. it'll be May. (laughs) <laughs> All right. You know, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way. And when we come back, we're going to get back. I, I was going to say on script, but anybody who listens to this show knows there's no script at all. We'll be right back. On the next Fresh Air, Barbara Brown Taylor, an ordained Episcopal priest who became a professor of religion. She talks with us about how exposure to the world's religions affected her students and the impact it had on her own faith. Her new memoir is Holy Envy, Finding God in the Faith of Others. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and online at gpbnews.org. My name is Chuck Reese. I'm the editor of an online magazine called The Bitter Southerner. I've seen decades of misconceptions about the South from the Beverly Hillbillies on down. In our podcast with GPB, we challenge those stereotypes and paint a very different picture of the American South. You can subscribe to the Bitter Southerner podcast for free at gpb.org slash podcasts. All right. Uh, welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. Amir Faroqi, Heath Garrett, Lori Geary, and Jim Galloway are all with us in the studio today. And, you know, I want to turn to a completely different subject, if I may, because we have Amir here, a uh, member of the Atlanta City Council. Um, Amir, your city council was the first body, first government body in the state that decided to take some actions on regulating what the last time uh, we talked about this issue is the wild west of electric scooters, uh, certainly in metro Atlanta, and I suspect in places like Savannah and maybe Albany and others as well. And now the legislature, too, has decided it's time to start regulating scooters. Tell us what the city has done. And you've got a new uh, it, something you already passed, and now you're looking at how to re- look at injuries uh, reported from scooters, right? Yes. So, um you know, I, I rode a scooter to the Atlanta United game yesterday. I think that they are immensely popular. It's funny uh, you did that because that's where I see them used a lot. Apparently, yeah. people parking in distant, cheaper parking lots and then getting on a scooter yeah. and going to right. Mercedes-Benz Stadium. They're great. Uh, there are fair safety concerns, which I'm happy to talk about, but they are immensely popular. We had 275, over 275,000 rides in January, over 300,000 rides in February, um, there was a national survey done, 11,000 people nationwide. Uh, Atlanta residents have a over 75% favorable view of scooters. Um, I think what you're seeing now is this tension between a demand for scooters and lack of infrastructure for, for safe passage. And so what's, what's forcing us to do, frankly, cities across the country, is have a very strong, thoughtful conversation on um, how do we think about and invest in transportation infrastructure. Um, are the streets just for cars or are, those, are they also for bikes and for scooters? And that requires expenditure of capital to change the, the face of the city, as it were. Um, we passed legislation uh, late last year that did a few things. It requires them to be written in the streets or in Atlanta, also in the Beltline, but it does not allow them to be written on the sidewalks. I get lots of angry emails all the time about people saying, why are these scooters on the sidewalks? Why isn't APD enforcing the rules? Um, it, requ- it allows them to be parked on the sidewalk, but leave about five feet of pedestrian right of way. 
Uh, and now it, it, it uh, charges the operators to operate in the city. I think $12,000 annually up to 500 scooters and then $50 per scooter on top of that. Um, so they, they have been met with people have, <laughs> I can't go anywhere in the city without someone bidding my ear about scooters, whether it's the grocery store. Yeah, well, that's or why council. I wanted to talk about yeah. it. It's an issue that people are really care yeah. about. I think, but, I think as Amir was going over those stats, us old people here were like, oh, really? Yeah. That many? <laughs> well, I mean, Grady is, Grady is reporting what, 80 to 100 uh, emergency room visits. Uh, each month, traced to scooters. Well, that's the action that you're looking at in city council, right? A reporting mechanism. So one of my colleagues, uh, Dustin Hillis, asked, uh, and we passed, a request of, for area hospitals to provide uh, scooter injury data. You know, I think it's a little bit incomplete to view that in a vacuum. You should also be looking at bicycle injury and vehicle injury data, along with the number of rides that are taken. You have to look at this in context. Uh, I think there were four scooter deaths around the country last year, over 40,000 car deaths. You know, th th so there is a, a level of, uh, I think, comparison that needs to take place. But again, I think this goes to, if we're going to allow scooters and uh, their use will continue to increase, is it safe to do so in the city? And can we put in place the infrastructure that allows it to be um, to be safe so that people can ride in? Because it's zero emissions, it's super cheap, it's easy to do, uh, and that's why people have taken to it. But there's there's some interesting physics issues here. In, in number one, I mean, scooters, scooters have small wheels. They have small wheels, which makes them much more vulnerable to potholes, to cracks in sidewalks where they are ridden. Uh, and, and you've got, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm talking as a, and you and I are, are, are longtime cyclists, right, Bill? Okay, you know on a bicycle your weight is on the back wheel. It's not on the front wheel. Okay, all right, on a, on a scooter, you've got, you've, got, you've got this huge lever right over the front wheel, and that's where the accident ha happens. There you've got, you've got, it's, it, there's every indication, if you hit a bump, there's every chance that you're going to go headers. Yeah. Oh, so the legislature, we should add, has already passed a bill that's got to get through the, I can't remember it started in the House or the Senate, to be honest with you, but they too have now passed legislation that would uh, uh, really crack down even further, regulate them. But one of the things I think is interesting here, Laurie, and the reason, Couple of reasons why this is a subject I think worth talking about. One, because Amir is right. People talk about these things all the time. We see them everywhere. But I think one of the reasons that we're a, a little bit um, uncertain about scooters is there's like nobody in charge. They just appear on the street. We don't know anything about a management structure. There's there's no one who hands the scooter to you at a, at a store. Um, you know, when you go on Uber or Lyft, at least there's an actual driver. These things just appear out of nowhere. Very and, ominous. And there, there is something kind of ominous about them. It's true. Um, and they appear anywhere and everywhere. Um, but I also think, to Amir's point, if you go to Europe where these are heavily used. I mean, there is infrastructure there and they have scooter lanes. And I mean, I liken this to the same argument as the bike lanes in the city of Atlanta. Um, if you create a bike lane, then the, the roads narrow for cars. And so, you know, I really wish that we, we had more room that we could, you know, accommodate all of these extra or different ways of transportation. But the safety issue is huge because, look, I make my kids wear a helmet when they bike. I wear a helmet when I bike. And I wish that there was some way to enforce the helmet law. Yeah, you know that. Well, go ahead. Well, Amir. we're preempted by state. It's the same as, as right. bicycle helmet. Right. Sixteen wow. and under, you have to wear a helmet. Scooters, you have to be eighteen enough to ride them. So we didn't really have any jurisdiction to say you have to wear a helmet. This is state law that governs. Um, Heath, it, it does also raise another larger question, and that's whether uh, major cities across the state are really committed to the kind of thing Lori's talking about: multi-use of our roadways. You know, Jim's right. I'm a bicycle rider, but I'll tell you what. I'm scared to death these days to ride my bike on the street, and the scooters would be scooter. even worse. Right. So we have yet to produce in this state the kind of multi-use areas that even New York City now has, which is dedicated bike lanes or, in this case, maybe scooter lanes that could – I mean, we're still way behind in that. Well, there's no question, right? And technology – and opportunity and all the above strategy on transportation, they're going to make this even more complicated. You know, driverless technology without, I think it was going to happen when we have vehicles showing up with no human being in them to pick you up within the next couple of years. That's happening in Phoenix, Arizona right now. So it's coming to the other big cities in the South. Uh, it's, we, we've got to make use, we got to make room for all of this. And uh, there is limited space. So it's going to make the jobs of folks like Amir on the city council and state legislators tougher. But if we all kind of stay sane and try to figure out how to accommodate it, we can, we can make some progress here, but it's going to, 
Atlanta has this is a much bigger issue in Atlanta than it is in Gainesville. Yeah, <laughs> right. And so we we also don't need the state to re- upside down the whole state policy. Let's let's let some experimentation happen in Atlanta and Savannah and some other places where this is happening. And let's try maybe Atlanta does it a little different than Marietta or Cobb County. And let's 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 let the experimentation at the local level drive us towards good policy. It's a great All endorsement right. for local control. I like it. <laughs> All right, Tom, Tom, Tom Faust, by the way, says that we all sound like a bunch of old people sitting around in the barbershop or the beauty salon, terrified of the new technology. All right, I wanted to make sure we covered that because it's it's an interesting subject. Jim, um, we don't have a whole lot of time left. And on tomorrow's show, we're going to get into this issue in much more depth. But we are going to see this week, um, the Senate is picking up the election uh, uh, reform bill, which essentially is about changing what kind of equipment we use to vote on, as well as some reforms in our election, uh, 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 how we run elections. Right, right. Um is, are, is this just a, a, you know, we know Democrats are pushing back hard, saying we need to have hand voting. Is is this a done deal that Democrats are making noise about that's not going to get anywhere? It is It is probably a done deal. This is, a, it's been out of Senate committee. It only, it's waiting for a House, uh, for a, a Senate floor vote, uh, which will probably get along party lines. It, it officially... It authorizes the expenditure of $150 million for uh, $100 million for uh, for uh, the the voting machine equipment, then fifty million dollars for training. Uh, Democrats and and other opponents, and there are Republican opponents to this this legislation, will tell you that you know that they 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 they're they're seeing some some signs of favoritism here, and that that the company E E and S, I believe, is uh, is has got the kind of the poll position. I'm a, a former lobbyist for them is is in the governor's office right now. Uh, I posted a little bit of information uh, today from uh, from uh, from a, uh, uh, respon- a request a response for requests for, for information that E and S uh, uh, put out. Uh, one of their the, the, I told you that the, the lawmakers are estimating 100 million for uh, uh, for uh, for for the equipment. One of one of E and S's uh, uh, proposals for equipment came in at 900. Uh, Ninety-nine million nine hundred ninety-nine thousand two hundred fifty dollars. Well, there's that, and there's also uh, Lori now a fight going on between Brad Raffensperger, Secretary of State's office, and FreedomWorks, a very conservative uh, organization here, uh, in which uh, FreedomWorks is saying Raffensperger is not being honest about what it's really going to cost for these uh, 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 computerized machines. It's an interesting debate because um, they're going to. There's FreedomWorks is saying it's going to be a lot more than what they're proposing, but also I think the, the other part of the debate is which machines are they considering? Because there was one where it, you know printed out the ballot of act, act exactly who you voted for, and then there's talk about a barcode. Well, if you give me a barcode, that really negates I the whole learn premise. Anything. I mean, why right. would you even do that? Right. I can't see who I voted right. for. Right. So um, I think there's some more work to be done on that issue. I don't think that we should go back to handwritten ballots. I mean, I think that we are further along with technology than that. To this day, Heath, I've said it on the show before, I can't figure out how this became a partisan issue. Computerized ballots say the Republicans, hand-marked ballots say the Democrats. I, it makes no sense to me that that's become partisan. Right. Amir's and, nodding too. Well, and honestly, there is a there's a small faction of conservative Republicans who want us to go. You know, yeah, they the join the Democrats, works, right? Right. Well, and they got the financial uh, side of all of this. But right. you're right. Uh, everybody's willing to go and trust uh, the ATM. Uh, you know, with huge financial transactions every day. But now this, I'll, I think this is more bipartisan than we're letting on. You have Kathy Cox, the former Democratic. Secretary of State testifying directly in front of everybody. You have a number of local Democratic registrars. And remember, like Lori mentioned earlier, a lot of this is controlled and governed at the local level by local county registrars in the state of Georgia. And they are Democrats and therefore some system like what's making its way through the legislature. So, but you're right. I, I think everything's so hyperpartisan. That's why it's ended up the way it has. Where are city of Atlanta folks on this? Uh, we haven't discussed this as city council. So, uh, but look, I think I'm surprised at you that this is like you. This has been a partisan issue. Every Georgian, I think, wants to know that their vote is going to be counted the way they cast it, and um, whether it's a handmarked ballot, which may or may not be safer, or more secure, or a computer version. We want to know that the chain of custody of when I press this button or I mark this ballot, 
that it's going to be counted that way and you can you can audit it. Uh, and I, I said this last time I was on air. Look, it doesn't matter how how we vote. History has shown someone's always going to try to rig the system some way or another, yeah. whether it's ballot stuffing or hacking a computer system. And so I, I think we have to whatever we end up with here, we need to be very transparent and clear with the public on here's here's how the sanctity of, of the election is preserved. And here's the steps that are taken. And you can check us on it. All uh, right. Yeah. We're going to talk a little bit more about this. Tomorrow. We're also going to really get into a conversation about the uh, the abortion bill that is making its way through the legislature um, on tomorrow's show. And uh, we hope you'll stay tuned for that. But, Lori, before we leave today, and Jim Galloway, particularly you two, um, we said at the beginning of the show that starting on Sunday, you'll be hosting Georgia Gang at 8.30 a.m. By the way, it, you can turn from there at 8.30 to GPB-TV at 9 to watch Political Rewind. Dick Williams, how many years did Dick Williams work in politics in Georgia? Like 110? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think in total, he told me it was 55 years yeah. in the business Amazing. and, you know, 30-some in Georgia. But what a giant. Um and to be able to try to fill his shoes is going to be quite a challenge. But um, what a tribute to Dick Williams to keep the Georgia gang on the air all of these years, to keep it relevant, to make it successful, to have a very loyal following. And we see that on Facebook, that there are so many people who are going to miss him. But, you know, I hope that those viewers will stay tuned and we'll keep the feistiness going, you know. But um, what a giant and what a tribute to Dick. Jim, I was an occasional panelist on the predecessor to the Georgia gang Sunday news conference. But you've known Dick since the 70s, too, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, you had a great tribute to him. Yeah, he was uh, he, he started at the AJC. I think uh, was was he at XIA first? I think he was at yes, w- he, was yeah. he, he was a news director at XRI. He, he came over to the AJC, was a business editor, was uh, became city editor, which is kind of like being God in a newspaper. Uh, then went on to TV. I thought that was your job. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm just John the Baptist. Okay. Uh, uh, so he went to TV. Uh, he was a TV columnist. Yes. Uh, then he went into his his uh, his uh, conservative opining. Yeah. Uh, so it was. And you know what? The one thing I, I, would, I would point out, I think he kind of brought broadcast uh, bipartisan pontificating. Uh, he, he and Tom Houck on WGST many, many years ago. They were the first of those acts of uh, people yelling at each other about politics, really. And their show was enormously popular on WGST Radio. But we we wish Dick well in his retirement. You know, there are a lot of political people, folks who really knew politics well, who have decided it's time to step down. John Pruitt, uh, one of them, Dennis O'Hare being another one. and now Dick Williams, uh, who knows, before long, we'll be celebrating your career as well, Galloway. Not, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> All right, good. All right, that's it. We're out of time for uh, uh, for today's show. Uh, join us again tomorrow at 2 o'clock. Uh, we'll be back with a lot more then. Uh, in the rest of the day, have a good one.